Acts 17, 22 to 34. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away or far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thank you, Chris. Happy Easter. Friends, just a heads up that... um, we're going to be focusing on verses 29 to 31 this evening. Uh, I wanted a slightly bigger, bigger reading just to give us uh, the context for the verses we're going to be uh, focusing on. Let me pray uh, before we begin. Father, thank you so much that we can celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Thank you so much that the grave couldn't keep him down. Our Savior is alive. He's risen Father, help us to um, think through some of um, just what that means uh, for us today, the fact that he is alive. And we pray for your Spirit's help tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why did God raise Jesus from the dead? Why did God raise Jesus from the dead? That's a really important question to ask, and I think especially on Easter Sunday. I looked up the answer to that question um, on several websites, um, and they all said pretty similar things. So things like, it confirms Jesus' identity as the Son of God. It fulfills Scripture. It guarantees our own resurrection. Those are some of the, the main answers I came across, and they're very good answers. They're legitimate. But what I found interesting was how none of the websites... I visited, uh, shared the reason that the Apostle Paul gives us in Acts 17. 
Look at what he says. Look at his reason in verse 31 for Jesus' resurrection. For he, that is God, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Why does God raise Jesus from the dead? What does Paul say? In order to prove that there's a coming judgment. Our first point is Jesus' resurrection is proof of the coming judgment. I wonder if you've ever thought of this as a reason for God raising Jesus from the dead. Paul says that he raised him from the dead so that we'd know that there is a judgment and that it is certain. It's a bit odd, isn't it? Maybe it even makes us, if we're honest, maybe it makes us a bit uncomfortable. We've been blissfully busy eating our chocolate eggs today and thinking about Easter bunnies. And we come to church and we learn that Jesus' resurrection means that there's going to be a judgment. Oh dear. That's just what we needed to keep our Easter bubble intact, isn't it? Now, we're going to think more about why God would want us to know about the coming judgment a bit later on. But for now, there's another question that's worth asking. How exactly does Jesus' resurrection prove that there's a judgment to come? What's the link between those two things? Here's how I think Jesus' resurrection confirms the reality of future judgment. What is Jesus appointed as, according to our verses? God appoints him as as judge. Our passage makes that extremely clear. Because Jesus is the judge, it's fair, isn't it, to assume that he's going to be doing some sort of judging. But notice how this judgment is described. It says that he will judge with justice. We all long for justice in our world, don't we? Jesus is the one who will finally bring that perfect justice that we crave. You see, when Jesus judges, no one will think, that's unfair. We will all see how right and good his judgment is. We will all be in awe of how good and fair a judge he is. But here's the thing. How can Jesus judge if he's, if he's dead? A dead person can't judge anything. You see, Jesus must be raised if he's going to judge. And because he is raised, well, we can be sure that he will indeed judge. This is why judgment is certain. You see, the man God has appointed as judge... He's not dead. He's alive. So Jesus was raised in order to prove that there's a judgment to come. Now here's something I found really interesting in verse 31. Who has received proof that Jesus has been raised and will therefore judge? If you were asked that question, how might you answer it? Who's received the proof? You might say, oh, the apostles. Or the 500-odd people who saw Jesus um, after he appeared. 
But that's not what verse 31 says. What does it say? God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is proof to you and is proof to me about the coming judgment. It's not just proof to the apostles or to the others who saw and touched the risen Christ. It's proof to us. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, hold on a second. I don't even believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So how can this resurrection be proof of anything? If that's you, then here's a question I would love for you to go away and think about. What do you think happened to Jesus' body? If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you do need to think about these questions. You can't, it's not good enough to just say, um, you know, dead people don't come back to life. The Christians believe that dead people don't come back to life. Generally. It's precisely because someone comes back to life and go, whoa, 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 there's something unusual about this. It sticks out. It stands out. So what do you think happened to Jesus' body? So on, on a Friday, Jesus' body is laid in a tomb to rest. But then on Sunday, his body's missing. What happened to the body? If Jesus didn't rise, where's his body? And why is the tomb empty? You might think, hey, maybe someone stole his body. Maybe the Jews stole his body. Maybe the the Romans stole it. But why would either of those groups have done that? To spite his followers? To prevent the, the tomb from becoming some sort of shrine? That's not impossible, but here's the thing. Why wouldn't they just have produced the body when Jesus' followers are going around telling everyone that Jesus was alive, that he had risen from the dead? You see, they could have stopped the Jesus movement right in his tracks, there and there. Maybe you think, hey, no, it wasn't the, the Jewish establishment, it wasn't the Romans, maybe it was the disciples, maybe they stole the body. Again, we need to ask, why would they have done that? That they went around telling everyone that Jesus was alive. Why would they lie like that? And what did they stand to gain from doing that? Remember, the disciples were persecuted, and some of them were even killed for preaching that Jesus was alive. Why would they have been willing to to suffer like that for something that they knew was a lie. Some people compare uh, the disciples' willingness to die for Christ with uh, a terrorist's willingness to die for their beliefs. Now, I think there are probably several reasons why that's not a great comparison to make, but I want to highlight just one. You see, the Islamic extremist is willing to die for something he thinks or hopes is true. He thinks that he will go to paradise if he's martyred. 
He thinks, but he cannot know that. He hasn't seen or been to paradise. But the disciples, they've seen the risen Jesus. They were willing to die for what they had seen with their own eyes. If Jesus hadn't actually been raised, then why would they have been willing to die for what they knew was a lie? It just doesn't make any sense. Those are just a few things for you to consider. If, you, if you're not yet persuaded that Jesus rose from the dead, please do come and speak to me afterwards and, and um, feel free to ask me questions. And let's think about that. What are your reasons for not believing it? I think there's sufficient evidence for everyone to know that Jesus rose from the dead. The arguments for his resurrection are far, far stronger than those against Why did God raise Jesus from the dead? To prove that there's a judgment to come. But why is there a judgment? Why does God want to judge? Here's why there's a judgment. We've diminished God. Have a look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And does not live in temples built by human hands. And is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Let's skip forward a few verses to verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image made by human design. And skill. What is humanity guilty of? It's guilty of making God smaller than he actually is. Now, how do people do this? So, in first century Athens, where Paul was speaking, people partly did this by creating statues or making images of God. You might have noticed in the reading it said, to the unknown God. Now, here's why that's an issue. First, God is infinitely greater than our minds can fathom. So any image that we make of him is always going to fall short of just how glorious and beautiful and wonderful he truly is. Second, God is spirit. So you're never going to be able to to capture who he is by making a physical image or statue of him. In short, any image humans make of God will always be a complete misrepresentation of who he is. In the entire universe, God is the being most worthy of honor and praise. Yet people depict him in all sorts of strange ways. For example, by creating images of him that resemble animals. Now, you might be thinking, look, Daniel, I don't have a statue of God in my house, okay? So I don't belittle him like that. And that may well be true. But aren't there other ways in which you might diminish or belittle God? 
Did you notice what it says in verse 25? God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. How do we diminish God when we think that he needs us? Paul says God isn't served by human hands. God doesn't need us. Maybe we think we're doing God a favor when we come to church, but you're not doing him a favor, right? You're doing yourself a favor by being in his house. Or maybe we think we're doing God a favor when we go on a pilgrimage or when we pray or when we give financially to, to church or to charities. Now, those are bad, not bad things. I'm not knocking those things. What I'm saying is those things cannot earn you brownie points with God. He doesn't need us. We need him. That's the point. He's the one who gives us life and breath and everything else. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? And everything else. Is there anything that you have that does not come from God? God doesn't need you. You need him. How often do we acknowledge that and live as though that were the case? Friends, we need to stop diminishing God by, by thinking that we can put him in our debt by the things that we do. He isn't served by human hands. By the way, if you're thinking, hey, I don't even believe in God, so I don't you know, even think about him, you also diminish him. The only reason you are alive, all of us are alive, is because of him. He creates us. And he sustains us every moment of our lives. Our universe didn't just randomly spring up into existence. As a well-known Christian, Christian teacher put it, in order for there to be a big bang, there must be a big banger. There needs to be someone who creates the big bang. Friends, we are here because of God. That's how we got here and that's how we continue to be here. It's all because of him. So even though we might do it in different ways, we are all guilty of diminishing God. Now, what should we do in light of this sin of ours of diminishing him? We need to repent. Our third point is God commands us to repent. Have a look at verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. We've seen how Jesus' resurrection is proof of the coming judgment, which is what we deserve for our attitude and behavior towards God and also towards one another. Now we see why God wants us to know of the coming judgment. And friends, it is not to go, you're doomed. Rather, it's to say, you can be forgiven. 
You can be forgiven for treating God lower than he truly is. You can be forgiven for ignoring him. You can be forgiven for trying to put him in your debt. You can be forgiven for using his name in vain. You can be forgiven for all the ways in which you failed to honor him. You can be forgiven. And the way to this forgiveness is not by doing stuff for God. The people in Athens thought that they could earn the forgiveness of their gods, that they could placate them by their good deeds or by making statues. But that is not how we receive forgiveness. How do we receive it? By repenting. The Greek word behind repentance simply means change your mind. That is what it means. So if you haven't already, change your mind on God. Stop diminishing Him and put your trust in His Son. You see, there's no greater way for you to honor God than to trust in His Son whom He loves. Jesus' resurrection points to the judgment that, it is com- that is coming. But it doesn't only do that. It also points to the way out of that judgment. And the way out is a person. It's Jesus. On the cross, Jesus experiences judgment on our behalf, on behalf of all those who trust in him so that we wouldn't need to fear that judgment. Have you repented and put your trust in him? The verse says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. That's pretty exhaustive, isn't it? You're unlikely to find someone who doesn't fall under the category of all people everywhere. But do you see why he commands that we repent? Friends, I know we don't like the word command. But because God is God, he has the right to make this command. And not only that, I think if God is loving, if he is loving, then he has to command that we repent. You see, repentance can't just be something that God merely suggests or recommends or advises. It's because he's loving that he commands repentance. Judgment is coming. Folks, it is so certain. Commanding us to to be prepared for that judgment is the kindest thing that God could do to you. When there's danger ahead... You never simply give people advice, do you? If you're you're waiting to to cross a really busy road with your three-year-old child, and they run across it without holding your hand, when you catch them on the other side, what are you going to tell them? Look, my personal advice is that you hold my hand when we cross the road, okay? That's just my advice. Of course you're not going to do that. You're going to command them, don't you ever the road like that again. You have no idea 
how dangerous that is. Why do you say that? Because you love them. That's why. If you're indifferent, you don't love them. You command because you love, and that's what God does. God is saying to us, repent and turn to my son. You can be forgiven. Judgment is coming. And I've proven this to you by raising my son from the dead. Will we listen to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many reasons you raised uh, Jesus from the dead. And the fact that you did, yeah, it does mean that yeah, it shows us that Jesus, your son, he really is your son. He really is the Messiah, the Christ. And it shows us that, yeah, we will be raised too if we are trusting in him. Just as he rose, we know that we will rise too. But Father, the fact that you raised him also shows us that there is a judgment to come. You have appointed him as judge. Father, thank you that if we are trusting in him, then we are sheltered from this judgment that we deserve. And Father, if there are any of us here who are not yet trusting in him, we pray that you would cause us to come under his wings for safety, for refuge. Father, thank you that we know that his justice is good, that he judges with justice, he's fair and right. Father, thank you that we can trust him Thank you that he is the one that will judge. Thank you for raising up your son. Amen.